0: Hey Couch Lutkers fans, it's Rob here. And before we get going with this final episode of our first series, I thought it's worth pointing out that the sound in this mix is a bit up and down as we recorded some of it using Zoom. So sit back, relax, I'm putting the fryer on now, enjoy. Welcome to the Couch Luckers podcast. Hey Trent, how are you doing? Hey Rob, how are you? Uh,
1: obviously we're not together again, uh, we're strictly observing our requirements it's to socially distance and hope that everyone is safe and more importantly healthy.
0: And in the couch luck as well, what that means is more viewing and more analysis.
1: Well that's, that's an excellent place to start and hopefully you uh, have a bit of fun along the way, right? This this week's episode, we're actually doing something we haven't done before and it's a deep dive into a specific subject. I'm looking forward to it. It's an interview we did just over a month ago now and as we said last time, the world was a very different place but hopefully the subject that we cover and the discussion that we have, you will enjoy as much as we did at the time when we recorded it. It,
0: it, it seemed like a lifetime away. I mean... Trent, it's been an interesting period of time. I know we've both been watching a few that, that we hadn't thought we'd have time to do. What have you been watching? The,
1: the greatest bit of uh, film content that I've seen in the last few weeks is actually from the Saturday Night Seder. And my favourite thing actually comes out of that, and that's Henry Winkler, the uh, the great Henry Winkler, reading from the Haggadah.
0: Were there any, when, any Fonzie references?
1: No, that... He doesn't need to do a Fonzie reference for me to love him. I mean, I've, I have been watching Barry, that's one show, and he's the co star in that show, and he's absolutely superb in that show. And uh, it's made me love him all over again. But otherwise, I have been watching uh, a couple of films. One of them is a Woody Allen film that I actually uh, had let slip through my fingers for years, and that's Stardust Memories. And I've got to say, uh, God damn it, Woody Allen. Um, <laughs> mm. It's a film where he plays a super successful, misanthropic, misanthropic I should say, uh, world-famous uh, comedy director who uh, has branched out into more serious fare and everyone is telling him that they liked his early stuff. So you could say it's deeply autobiographical. I'm going to say goddamn Woody Allen because he made me empathise for him. It's, <laughs> it's a film where you have every right to hate this guy and yet I came away from it both, you know, maybe it extends into real life as well, but at least the character in the film, I empathise for him and I didn't want to empathise for him. So, God damn you, Woody Allen.
0: But, Trent, you know, I've also been watching a few things. Look, I've been really getting into *Faulder* Series 3. It's just out. Um, and uh-huh. if, if anyone caught the uh, 61J presentation by Avi Isakurov, uh talking about the creation of, Fauda and you know where it's going. One of the one of the spoiler alerts for those watching Indian TV is they've actually sold the series into India to examine the Pakistan-India Kashmir conflict. So uh, I can't wait for that to come out. I um, also relate to the main character in it, Daron. There's nothing better than a slightly dad body, balding character with a bit of uh, you know with a bit of inner anger playing out on the screen. You just don't see enough of
1: that. Well, we're, we're learning so much about the real Rob Keldor on this podcast. <laughs> the, the,
0: the, the, the other thing that I'm doing is a bit of a retro thing. As a old Madrid in a youth movement, um, I caught the movie Meatballs with Bill Murray recently. And let me tell you, in that sort of slapstick uh, comedy of the late 70s, it really sticks out because it's actually good-natured without being particularly over-sexist and uh, misogynistic. a little bit
1: misogynistic. It, well, it is a bit from my recollection, but I'll stand, I'll stand corrected. Um, well, of course, directed by Ivan Reitman. Uh, you know, he's a genius. Of, uh, well, I believe you're quoting The Late Show. Uh, that, you just pulled it. That. That's a deep cut, Rob. Uh, it's something else that I caught the first episode of, Uh, It's a show called McMafia. I was wondering if anyone's seen it. It's a BBC show that's on Amazon. Um, And I've come away um, convinced the show is anti-Semitic, has a lot of kind of tropes and undercurrents that confirm uh, bad stereotypes. It's basically portraying every Jew except for the lead um, as insidious and deceitful and manipulative and uh, you know, a puppeteer of uh, of others. And it left such a distasteful um, residue. And I'm just wanting to know if anyone else there has had the same experience of that show. So I'm putting that out there. If anyone has uh, seen it and had a different takeaway, I'd love to know about it. If you could post that in our Facebook group, I would love to get that conversation going. Hi, I'm Osha Ginsberg, and you have excellent taste because you're listening Couch podcast. I don't know how many times I've been watching something, trying to absorb it and understand it, and thought to myself, this would be even better if I knew about the real-world people and history that informs the characters and events or story world of the show or film. Now, I've frequently tried but failed to resist the urge to pick up my phone and do a little research, and I end up distracting myself from the thing I was watching in the first place. But Rob... I think I know what the solution is. I need an expert, someone to turn to, a guide to help give me the context I need.
0: Brent, who's that nice lady sitting right next to you?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked. It's Dr. Deborah Ahrens, a linguist from UNSW. Deborah is a specialist in linguistic analysis of humour, but today she's joining us as the ultimate guide through the elaborate and dense story world of the excellent Amazon show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She's going to help unpack the truth from within the fiction and contextualise it in the evolution of stand-up comedy. Please welcome Deborah Ahrens. Before we dig into your area of expertise, something that we'd like to do just to get everyone in the mood is to answer some quick-fire questions in a section that we call "in the fryer."
0: Mm. So you to imagine you're like a little potato, like being ah. cooked. By both us. Both of you. And, and the, Sizzled. And the heat is getting hot. It's getting hotter as we go.
2: Okay.
1: Okay. So Rob's going to get you into the first one. And like we said, just
0: off the top of your
2: head. Oh, You have no idea what's at the top <laughs> of my head. Yeah.
0: So Deborah, Sandler, yes or no? That's no. A, I, ah, that was very
2: definitive. Why is that? We're talking about Adam. Yes. Not my former headmaster <laughs> at King David. I don't really love Adam Sandler, I have to say.
1: I want to know about your former headmaster, though.
2: (laughs) Terrible man. Oh, this is going out to all the Jews. (laughs) No, there was a formidable headmaster at King David High School, which is where I was, the Jewish day school in uh, Joburg. And he was was formidable and feared. His name was Sandler, otherwise known as The Boss. Oh, wow. Long before Bruce Springsteen.
1: Well, I'm, I'm shuddering just at the mention of his name, even though that's uh, nothing in my experience. Oh. Okay, so our next one is Mel Brooks or Woody Allen?
2: Ooh, hard one. Um, I think Woody Allen. Hmm?
1: Mm-hmm. Is that because of his
2: stand-up experience? I just think he's incredible. Oh, look, I love both of them. You can't make me choose. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because uh, he was a fabulous stand-up, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, he hasn't done that for years, but that's he was right. fantastic. And I also like the stuff he's written. He's very clever, mm. and we won't discuss his behaviour.
0: We'll try and separate that, shall yeah. we? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I think that's always the big issue now, isn't it? With many people, and unfortunately, many people whose name ends in a stain or a Stein. Yeah. Do, do we do we ignore it? Okay. But I do
2: love Mel Brooks. Please let that be on record. I think I think that's important to put that on record. Absolutely, yeah. we've contained
0: <laughs> Mel Brooks is loved. Okay. Love. um... Taika Waititi or
2: Sasha Baron-Cohen? Ooh, <laughs> gee, these are difficult questions. Yes. I'll have to say Sasha Baron-Cohen because I know his work better. That, that's a
1: perfectly valid answer. Let's move on to Seinfeld or Friends.
2: Ugh, there's, well, definitely not Friends. So let's say Seinfeld.
1: Good.
0: I, I like how definitive you've been. Oh,
2: I'm pretty definitive <laughs> when it comes to humour, I think.
0: When you're watching TV or whatever, mm. which would you rather be watching? Uh, which would you rather be when watching, provoked or amused?
2: Amused. Why is that? Uh, because I start getting out of control when I get provoked.
0: Ooh, what does that mean?
2: That means um, sometimes I tweet. Not much, though, <laughs> because I don't want to be public. But I just get myself into a spin and I I start shouting and that's not good.
1: It sounds like we might need to hear your uh, Twitter handle just for those people who might be interested in your tweets.
2: I don't tweet much. I just retweet a lot. My Twitter handle is (laughs) Nnedi Seagoon. With a C.
1: Right. Got you. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next one. Two words to describe the quintessential Jewish point of view.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, I have to give them to you. Yes, please. Dafka? (laughs) And, um, yeah, just self-contradictory.
1: Right. Sounds like you've been talking to my wife.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It it could well be.
2: Maybe
1: I might do the last one because uh, this is uh, our regular end to the in the fryer section. We ask a a question. Now, the question does come, well, the answer, I should say, comes with a reward. It's (laughs) a muzzle sticker provided by Gold's World of Judaica. It's gold. It's shiny. It's got Mazel printed in beautiful cursive in the middle. And in order to earn this sticker, can you please tell us how many Sarah Silverman written sketches made it to air during her one season of Saturday Night Live? None. That is correct. We have a second winner of this coveted (laughs) sticker. It is our pleasure and honor to hand it over.
0: Thank now, at Deborah, as a university lecturer, you know that you have to declare any prizes or gifts provided oh, yeah. to administration. So we expect your bosses, deans and all those kind of people to be checking your record that these muzzles stickers have are recorded. Have been Yes, yeah. absolutely. And
2: I will donate them to the School of Languages and Linguistics, which will have good use for them.
1: <laughs> There's a lot of people who are in the community in particular, but I think more broadly out there who are really enjoying the wonderful Amazon show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and this happens to be an area that we know that you are an expert in.
2: I'm not an expert, but I've written about it and talked about
1: well, it. Well, in our opinion, you're an expert. All right, I'm an expert. Um, and to paraphrase you about the show, you say the show charts a revolution in comedy from vaudeville performers who specialize in one-liners to monologists and commentators who establish personas to illuminate and critique. Mm -hmm. Is that a correct quote?
2: That's a correct quote. It doesn't sound as good said as written. (laughs) I think
1: It's a bit much to swallow. I I believe you. I believe you are. But so with that in mind, um, there's a few things that we want to dig into that might help people out there Mm -hmm. who are enjoying the show, who may not have as much of the historical knowledge and background that obviously you do, um, that might want to hear about it and uh, be able to appreciate the show even more perhaps. Um, So I guess... Where to start would be to talk about what the dominant comedy styles scenes and popular performers were in the lead-up to the area, in which uh, I should say the era in which the show was set now kind kind of disreputable, weren't they?
2: Well, they weren't really comedy clubs, that's the thing. Ah, right. Um, they started off sort of being little underground places for a bit of music and a bit you know a little bit of acting and occasional bits of stand-up. but stand-up was very new. Mm-hmm. at that time and if it was anywhere it was in the clubs but um it it wasn't well known P- you know people didn't understand what stand-up was and people who went to the clubs m- went for a bit of music usually folk music there were never any women doing anything
1: so would you say it was still very much in its vaudeville traditions of you know being more about a general performance of few different styles of, you know, entertainment as opposed to deliberately, you know, someone standing up with a microphone, telling a story perhaps, or telling a long form joke?
2: Well, it wasn't vaudeville. It wasn't vaudeville. No, it was, somewhere um, in between. it was, this this um, genre was still finding its feet, right. I think. So occasionally you would get a comic standing up and being able to do some stuff other than just tell jokes. The main move into stand-up was a move away from people who just stand there and recycle jokes or even tell their own uh, original jokes, but they would be one-liners. They wouldn't really have anything to do with the personality of the person giving them.
1: Kind of that uh, Henny Youngman style. Henny Youngman was... Take my wife, please. please, Yeah, yeah.
2: that that would be the paradigm of it. And he was really good.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, for those people who might... Um, not know who Henny Youngman was he actually appears as himself in Goodfellas um, and that might be the last time anyone's uh, seen him perform so if you're a fan of that Martin Scorsese film that's the place to see him
2: well, I didn't know that yeah, yeah. he wrote a well you can get some of his books but one of the best collections of his work is called Take My Wife Please <laughs>
0: right yes. Uh, that's a oft-repeated phrase kind of thing. So, we, you, you know, Deborah, you were talking about sort of the era of the beginning of stand-up. Do you think it's linked at all to sort of the Jewish tradition of oral um, history?
2: I wonder. I mean, there's no doubt that the Jewish influence in the history of stand-up comedy is disproportionate. I mean, yes. basically, Jews ran the thing for um, a long time, I think. Um, what do you
1: put that down to?
2: Well, I think, you know, specific historical contexts. If you think about where Jews went on holiday, Jews who lived Mm. in the United States, say, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, they set up their own holiday resorts. And one of the places they used to go to is what uh, is now lovingly referred to as the Borscht Belt. Mm. Borscht Belt because Borscht would have been on the menu for every dinner. Um, there were Jews who fled the heat of the northeast coast or the east coast during the summer and and mo- and went to, uh, this was in upstate New the, York. The, the Catskills. The yeah. Catskill yeah. Mountains in upstate New York. And it catered for different social levels of Jews, actually, mm-hmm. but only Jews. Yeah. So you could get the, uh, the rich and culture Jews, the not so rich, the wannabe culture Jews, the... Bottom of the barrel juice, they all would come there. Usually um, families would go there and the man who was working to support the family would come in on weekends as a rule. But what they did get there was three meals a day, three good meals a day and entertainment every single evening. Mm -hmm. And we see that later in the, I think it's in the second season of Mrs. Mays.
1: And I think there's also a really good reference point for a lot of people to, de- uh, that depicts that world is um, dirty, dirty dancing. Dirty, dirty yeah, dirty dancing. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely,
2: yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And it's amazing how many Jewish comedians but also writers got going in the Bosch mm-hmm. Belt. Um, Philip Roth did a few stand-up okay. seasons there. Wow. Wow, uh- yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, that he got a job. That's what he did. I think he was very young. He got a job over the holiday season um, doing entertainment. So there was a lot of entertainment. But one of the things there always was, was a a guy or two people would stand up on stage and fire little jokes. But they were very much one-liner clever jokes. Not many of them had the tradition yet of storytelling. Storytelling. They were just joke tellers or they were entertainers more generally. So they'd sing and dance and play the piano and, you know, do stuff. Um, But it was all part of the entertainment that had to be provided every night for the guests.
1: Right. And so you talk about that style of comedy. uh, And what uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel depicts is the emergence of uh, stand-up comedy, which, as I mentioned earlier, quoting you, is monologue or social commentary. Um, Can you describe how that uh, change started to happen and what form it took?
2: Okay, so the names that are most clearly associated with the origins of that kind of stand-up comedy are Lenny Bruce and Mort Sahl. (laughs) Mort Soule is a very interesting case, mm-hmm. um, but he sort of ran aground. He was the first. He was the first who came in and basically just spoke about what he wanted to speak about.
1: Uh, I happen to be a huge fan of his. Oh. Do you think um, it's his obsessiveness about the Warren Commission and, and the Kennedy assassination that diverted him away? Absolutely. From,
2: yeah. It's well known that once yeah, he yeah. got well, – after Kennedy's assassination, he got completely – Caught up in conspiracy theories and that sort of politics, he's mm. a very bitter man. He's still alive and wow. he's very bitter. Well, he's bitter because he thinks he was every bit as good as Lenin Bruce, and he might have been. But you know, his his life took a different yeah. turn.
1: Um, I, I believe that Mortsal is uh, name-checked in one of the first or second mm. episodes of Maisel. He is, yes, yeah.
2: he is. He is. Um, Mozart was very interesting. He just like stroll onto the stage in these little comedy clubs. He was on the West Coast, mm. if I'm not. San Francisco And I think the name of the club was called The was the Hungry Eye. And he would just sort onto the stage with a newspaper under his arm, sit down and start dealing with the events in the newspaper that he had something to say about. He was kind very of, unusual.
1: Kind of like a, a proto-Bill Maher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. Without the newspaper, yeah. Well, well. Now we're in a different yeah. time. We don't read newspapers That's anymore.
0: Right. He would be a wonderful podcaster, though. I'd imagine. Oh well, uh, see if you can st- get
1: him. He still does YouTube videos on a semi-regular basis. Does he? Uh, it's it's yeah. It, and bitter is the definitive edge. He's very bitter.
2: Oh, he's bitter. <laughs> yeah. He is, and he and Lenny Bruce. I've read something. I don't know. One of the historic things they used to work upstairs and downstairs at a particular club, and they'd both be running in to see what the other was doing as they, you know, as they finished off. Um, he, he was bitter. He was bitter. Is bitter probably because he is and was very, very talented, but he made different decisions. Look, Lenny Bruce made decisions that eventually finished him off. So. But Lenny Bruce is the name associated most with the beginnings of this kind of stand-up comedy. And what
1: was he doing for people who haven't seen the show? And he is portrayed pretty well in the show. Oh, I think he's
2: given a bit of a gloss. I don't think he's nearly... He was nearly as kind (laughs) and pleasant and gentle and... Innocent, uh, well. I'm may-
1: maybe referring more to his uh, routine. Oh, his routine, his character.
2: Okay, yeah. okay. Um, yeah. In the in the in this show, they do sort of clean him up a bit, hmm. uh, not in terms of what he says, hmm. but just in terms of he becomes a much nicer guy. Hmm. He gets on stage and he does what he calls a spritz. <laughs> he says he spritzes, he spritzes the goyim. He just <laughs> sprays whatever he wants to. Over everyone, he just says whatever he wants. But what's interesting is he's not at all. Not only is he not embarrassed about being Jewish, he flaunts it. There's a, a secret which is actually a lot of the Jewish, the Yiddish he knows and the Jewish humor that he got was not part of his background. He was taught it by a guy called Joe Ansis. Um, so he, but he was pre, he was a good student. Right. He was a very good student. And the sort of thing that he did was to get up and just talk about anything and talk about it very much in the first person
1: and that was the new revolution the new revolution
2: was what he was prepared to talk about because jews during the time just before this were quite happy to talk about jewish things in front of other jews they didn't think he should take it outside of the community so you know that that uh, that particular imperative it's okay for us but don't let them ever get a hold
0: of it i mean i i think that dynamic is still alive now like you can be critical around the shabbat table or amongst jewish friends but don't the, tell them no no don't you know you know don't if you're in a work environment or whatever, no, no, we, we support what whatever's going on in the world kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I think – and that's the first rule that Lenny Bruce broke. He said, you know, nah, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to talk about human beings. I'm going to talk about the farting and stooping and pissing and I don't know what he says for sex. I, <laughs> I can only think of rude words. Stooping, <laughs> stopping, yeah. that's what he taught us, a lovely
1: Jewish word. So would you say then that um, this change that subsequently became the stand-up comedy that we all know now and, and is depicted and so crucial to the show was performer-driven as opposed to audience-driven?
2: Very performer-driven. Yeah. Very. very wow. He didn't care about his audience as much. What he knew was just what he was going to talk about. And, I mean, it became an art form because he often wasn't prepared. But when you hear mm. some of those things, I mean, they they, they must have been prepared. It wasn't mm. improv. Um, He talked about a lot of things, though, that people did not talk about in public at at the time, in the late 50s and early 60s. He talked about politics, talks about sex, talked about drugs. He was a very early member of the counterculture. Um, But mostly, he didn't mind at any time talking about sex and confronting people with that. He talked about being Jewish all the time.
1: So what was it about that era then that um, made him so fertile and so then well-received and then able to launch this whole new kind of art form?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think people were probably ready for it, but we, we don't know that. We just know that he was he was very well-received, but the police... Broke into his performances nearly every night. He was arrested. What is long after what happens in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, he was tried for obscenity. It went on forever. There were many, many different trials, and it. In fact, the Lenny Bruce judgment, as far as I know, changed the definition of obscenity in American yeah. law.
0: Mm-hmm. Who, who, who did Lenny? Bruce influence you know which comics followed on from him who who the ones that used his style or is it everyone
2: I think it's everyone but the people who I mean Joan Rivers who's a particular hero of mine said he was the first without him there would be nothing he he basically blazed the way for all of us to follow so Lenny Bruce um, influence as far as I'm concerned Joan Rivers Joan Rivers influenced Sarah Silverman. These are the kind of people that he had a direct influence on in terms of performance style. A phenomenon where women of a certain age, which means women of probably over 60, uh, who had been entertainers before with stage shows, opened up their own clubs, usually in Miami, little clubs. Mm. A lot of them were in Miami Beach. And then again, it's where the Jews would go to winter rather Mm. than to summer. And um, they were entertainers more generally. You know, they'd play the piano and they'd sell, sing rude songs. I'm thinking about um, Pearl Williams. And, and Belle Bell uh, Bell Bath. Bath is the yeah. famous one of mm. those. Um, just as a little aside, Lenny Bruce's mother, when Lenny was on trial for all these things, said, Belle Bath is more obscene than Lenny Bruce, but they don't put her on trial. And the reason for... And she was more obscene than Lenny Bruce, if you, depending on how you use the word obscene. She actually said dirtier. And it, that is what they were. Their comedy was schmutzig. They would tell dirty jokes. And they were always jokes about a man who went and found a prostitute or a man who had a mistress and a wife. And they very like... We are... You know, we, we get through what we can. We are the, the low level of society... Uh, we are, what The word I use in my culture is grob, we're dirty, mm-hmm. we're crude. And the people who used to go to those shows loved them, but they were Jews. They were Jews of a certain kind who were on holiday and wanted to laugh, but, and laugh about being Jewish with other Jews. That's what it was all about. And they became famous through their um, LP records. Mm. They were called party records. And people would buy them and hide them away from the kids, I'm told, and used to play them at home. They were just basic. So the ones that I'm talking about there are really Pearl Williams and Barth. Sophie Tucker was a different story. Sophie Tucker was a phenomenon of her own and she used to entertain huge crowds and audiences at the most important halls and part of it was her singing as well and she was she had a different kind of persona she used to be the last of the red hot mamas that's Mm. what she used to say um but very different she she um very much played a little more safely, but she was big on saying, I'm a woman, I'm big, and I'm fat, and I love sex. Right. And, and she had a lot of... But on the other hand, she also had this sort of sentimental stuff going on, so she'd sing My Yiddish Mama, and people would cry.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So just bringing it back to the Marvelous Mr. Oh, Maisel. Sorry, yeah. No, no, of course. Um, when you've got the tradition of those very famous female comics yeah. slash entertainers, and you've got the Lenny Bruce's and Mort Sales Can you speculate on why the creators of the show chose to um, tell this story through a female Jewish protagonist, if it's apocryphal?
2: It's not quite apocryphal. Oh, good, please. please. It's not quite, but I mean, I'll tell you what is um, definitely a point at which Mrs. Maisel would deviate from the real history. She was attractive, young, rich. Uh, talented. She had a lot going for her. Now, none of these these guys, none of the comedians, either of male or female variety, had it easy. They came up through the clubs. Um, I think Joan Rivers says, we came up through the toilets. We played the toilets. They would play anything just to get on a stage. And she just cruised in, you know, after... Her husband left her, she got drunk on Shabbat wine, ran off to the club, grabbed the mic, and she was dressed in her nightgown, grabbed the mic and just started going off. I don't even think she knew she was doing stand-up comedy at the time. She was just expressing her hurt and her anger at being dumped. But clearly the writers of the show have an interest in taking a women's point of view. Mm. But they take the point of view of this woman who they created. And I think... Look, I love this show. Mm. I do love this show. But I think that's exactly where, historically, it's a bit off. She didn't have to try very hard. Like, all those other people worked and worked and worked to get an audience to get a name. And she just got it. It's fiction, though. Yeah. That's point. It's fiction. I don't mind that they use that fiction. But I, I, I have tried to say it's actually not what, were, what the reality was for women or, in fact, for comedians generally in those days, but particularly difficult for women. And also, I mean, she didn't need to work. She didn't need... Well, her husband dumped her and she chose to work. And then she worked, if I'm not wrong, at the switchboard for a while and then started selling cosmetics. Um, but really, she realised at as Well... Interrupting myself. There's yeah. another character in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel called Susie, and Susie... Her, ma- her manager, yeah. Her, well, she becomes oh, her, her manager. manager. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Susie is the kind of manager, sort of, of the club, mm. the gaslight mm. that she goes to, and Susie sees her just once and thinks, this is gold. And Susie talks her into letting Susie manage her. And... Um, You see quite a lot of the behind the scenes of what Susie does. Now Susie, I don't know if you care about this, Susie is an interesting character because she seems by all accounts to be Jewish, her name is Jewish, but she comes from a part of town where Jews didn't live and she seems to come from a very non-Jewish background. Whether that's relevant or not, I don't know, I think it's relevant. But anyway, Susie can read the times, Susie can read the audience, and Susie can see gold when she sees it. So,
1: it's really interesting. Maybe um, an opportunity to, to wrap up.
2: Um,
1: how do you see uh, stand-up comedy having evolved since that time, since the time depicted in The Marvelous Mrs Maisel?
2: Um, there are women who are doing comedy today, who are doing stand-up, who are edgy. Some of them, I think, are better than others. Mm. And I think now, today, comedy, I mean, stand up is the comedy form, it would Mm. seem. Um, And it's very interesting. What's most interesting for me at the moment, and I don't have an answer to it, is this issue of what you can say, how bad you can be. Because Lenny Bruce tried to be the baddest anyone could be. Today, there are people who are actually called on some of the things if they're sexist, yeah. if they're racist, if they are promoting sexual assault. All of those things are now taken into account and performers are de-platformed mm-hmm. in certain cases. In
0: fact, they even you know go back to their old tweets and things like that and they can lose work. So yeah. from the get-go as a stand-up, you've got to uh, you know make sure you're... Clean. Clean.
2: Clean. If you're going to be dirty, basically, <laughs> um, yeah. you know. Thinking of uh, Louis C.K. Yeah. Louis C.K. is a very good example of someone who I think was an excellent stand-up comic, but he had he lost work. He seems to have come back, and he's not sorry.
0: But you also look at somebody like Cosby, and if you look Ooh. at his, you look at his stand-up. He actually you know, essentially broadcasts what he is doing. Mm. Like there's lots of his stand-up, which includes, you know, slipping women pills as a joke.
2: Yeah. I mean, some of these guys have broken my heart, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Bill Cosby broke my heart. Yeah, um, it, when We don't want to know these things about the personal lives of the people who put their personal lives on the stage.
1: It's, it's tricky. I mean, something that um, I know you, you talk about in your work is license between the performer and the audience. And it seems now the license extends to people well beyond the time and place that the performance is actually happening. And what does that do to a performer giving a, you know, delivering their material?
2: Well, I, and also the other thing is that you don't give them license anymore. I mean, yeah. now with Me Too, with all kinds of things. The, the license that's given is just for the time that they're on the stage in the club because if we can dig out anything bad that you're doing outside of that, we'll mention it. And I don't have a position on this particularly because I'm just interested in the license that is given performers yeah. by their audiences. I don't think audiences are allowed to complain that something was too dirty. They knew what they were getting.
1: Mm. Well, on that note, all we can say is thank you. This has been incredibly illuminating, and I hope it provides all those people who love the show with, you know, a really rich context for watching it in future. So, thanks so much,
0: Deborah. Oh,
2: thank you, but Thanks,
0: Deborah. That's great. Cheers. Thanks.
2: Right. The Couch Luckers podcast, schlepping through the zeitgeist, so you don't have to. Trent, I got to
0: say, I really enjoyed our chat with Deborah Ahrens. You can probably tell that I am
1: a bit of a student of stand-up comedy but uh, I was sitting at the feet of a, of a real master, someone who I was really excited to learn from and uh, you know any opportunity to talk about Lenny Bruce is a welcome opportunity.
0: Hey, hey Trent you know it's a bit of a sad time actually at the moment. Trent we've reached the end of series one of the Count Schlutka's podcast. Importantly if you've missed a few of our podcasts they're standalone in their own right, so go back to the earlier episodes. We've got Osha Ginsberg, Alice Fraser, and, of course, last, the last episode with Brad Slade.
1: Before we go, I'd like to leave everyone off the back of our discussion with Deborah with two questions. The first one is, who do you think the current successor is to Lenny Bruce, Joan Rivers and Sarah Silverman in that continuum of great Jewish stand-ups. My nomination is Michelle Wolf, for those of you who uh, saw her special and saw her um, correspondence dinner uh, performance at the White House a few years ago. And the other one is a more general question of who is your favourite Jewish stand-up comedian of all time? That's something we'd love you to go to the Facebook group and share, get that discussion going. Keep the Couch Luckers podcast alive through the discussion group on Facebook. And when we come back after I hear this, I'm sure we'll be getting some really interesting points of view on both stand-up comedians and who the the great Jewish uh, figurehead of the stand-up comedy community is now.
0: So, listen, we've really enjoyed doing this and we hope you've enjoyed listening to us. If you get a moment, please Review us on Apple uh, Podcasts, rate and recommend us highly. And if you don't like us, just keep it to yourself, really.
1: Or, or you know, just contact us personally. We're always good for some constructive feedback, right, Rob?
0: <laughs> Speak for yourself, Trent. I take it apart. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Anyway, uh, it's been a pleasure and we hope you've all enjoyed spending some time with us. Uh, we hope that everyone takes care Make sure they look after themselves and their friends and family at this, you know, really difficult time. We don't underestimate how, uh, how much time that takes and we're so grateful for the fact that you're taking some time away from that to spend some time with us. Uh, and we look forward to being back in your ears sometime in the near future.
0: Thanks a lot. That's great.
1: Bye for now. Bye.
0: You've been listening to the Couch Luckers podcast. This podcast has been produced by etowls.com.au.